fuck Donald Trump, fuck Biden too. Both of them don't give a fuck about you. That's about all you need to know about our current situation. This photograph is of a dead elephant and a dead donkey, and Uncle Sam is examining both of them. That's also about all you need to know about our current situation. And here's Chris Hedges to lead the funeral ceremony. Chris Hedges, American Requiem. This is from the website popularresistance.org. However inequitable its bias, capitalist democracy at least offered the possibility of incremental and piecemeal reform. Now it is a corpse. Well, it's over. Not the election, the capitalist democracy. However biased it was toward the interests of the rich and however hostile it was to the poor and minorities, the capitalist democracy at least offered the possibility of incremental and piecemeal reform. Now it is a corpse. The iconography and rhetoric remain the same, but it is an elaborate and empty reality show funded by the ruling oligarchs. $1.51 billion for the Biden campaign and $1.57 billion for the Trump campaign to make us think there are choices. There are not. The empty jousting between a bloviating Trump and a verbally impaired Joe Biden is designed to mask the truth. The oligarchs always win. The people always lose. It does not matter who sits in the White House. America is a failed state. The American dream has run out of gas, wrote the novelist J.G. Ballard. The car has stopped. It no longer supplies the world with its images, its dreams, its fantasies. No more. It's over. It supplies the world with its nightmares now. There were many actors that killed America's open society. The corporate oligarchs who bought the electoral process, the courts and the media, and whose lobbyists write the legislation to impoverish us and allow them to accumulate obscene amounts of wealth and unchecked power. The militarists and war industry that drained the national treasury to mount futile and endless wars that have squandered some seven trillion dollars and turned us into an international pariah. The CEOs raking in bonuses and compensation packages in the tens of millions of dollars that shipped jobs overseas and left our cities in ruins and our workers in misery and despair without a sustainable income or hope for the future. The fossil fuel industry that made war on science and chose profits over the looming extinction of the human species. The press that turned news into mindless entertainment and partisan cheerleading. The intellectuals who retreated into the universities to preach the moral absolutism of identity politics and multiculturalism while turning their backs on the economic warfare being waged on the working class and the unrelenting assault on civil liberties. And of course, the feckless and hypocritical liberal class that does nothing but talk, talk, talk. Now I'll break in here and tell you that I've been picking on the comfy liberal Democrats all along. Since I started this channel, I've heaped most of the blame on the weak-minded liberals who watch MSNBC and Rachel Maddow, 
CNN, read the Washington Post, read the New York Times, and all the other media sources that are owned by corporations. If the people collectively, at least the people in the comfy situations in life who vote in primaries, could pull their heads out of their asses, we'd be okay. The people who swill the corporate Kool-Aid day in and day out are the ones we really need to blame for all of the mess we're in. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I heard that on Gomer Pyle when I was a kid and it really stuck with me. So this next portion of Chris's article is aimed right at you, comfy liberals, comfy Dems, and comfy Republicans, comfy suburbanites, and comfy urbanites. You fucking suck. If there is one group that deserves our deepest contempt, it is the liberal elites, those who posture as the moral arbiters of society while abandoning every value they purportedly hold the moment they become inconvenient. Think me too, people. The liberal class, once again, served as pathetic cheerleaders and censors for a candidate and a political party that in Europe would be considered on the far right. Even while liberals were being ridiculed and dismissed by Biden and by the Democratic Party hierarchy, I think he meant to say even while progressives were being ridiculed and dismissed by Biden and by the Democratic Party hierarchy. Otherwise, the rest of the sentence won't make sense. Let me start that sentence over and put progressives in and you decide what you think is better. Even while progressives were being ridiculed and dismissed by Biden and by the Democratic Party hierarchy, which bizarrely invested its political energy in appealing to Republican neocons, liberals were busy marginalizing journalists, including Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, who called out Biden and the Democrats. The liberals, whether at The Intercept or The New York Times, ignored or discredited information that could hurt the Democratic Party, including the revelations on Hunter Biden's laptop. It was a stunning display of craven careerism and self-loathing. The Democrats and their liberal apologists are, the election has illustrated, oblivious to the profound personal and economic despair sweeping through this country. They don't give a fuck about you. They stand for nothing. They fight for nothing. Restoring the rule of law, universal health care, banning fracking, a Green New Deal, the protection of civil liberties, the building of unions, the preservation and expansion of social welfare programs, a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, the forgiveness of student debt, stiff environmental controls, a government jobs program and guaranteed income, financial regulation, opposition to endless war and military adventurism were once again forgotten. Championing these issues would have resulted in a Democratic Party landslide. Let that sink in for a moment. But, since the Democratic Party is a wholly owned subsidiary of corporate donors, promoting any policy that might foster the common good, diminish corporate profits, and restore democracy, including imposing campaign finance laws, was impossible. Biden's campaign was utterly bereft of ideas and policy issues, as if he and the Democrats could sweep the elections by promising to save the soul of America. At least the neo-fascists have the courage of their demented convictions. In a traditional democracy, the liberal class functions as a safety valve. It makes piecemeal and incremental reform possible. It ameliorates the worst excesses of capitalism. It proposes gradual steps towards greater equality. It endows the state and the mechanisms of power with supposed virtues. 
It also serves as an attack dog that discredits radical social movements. The liberal class is a vital component within the power elite. In short, it offers hope and the possibility, or at least the illusion, of change. Now here I'll break in and say that Chris Hedges is pretty mild-mannered when it comes right down to it. I think he would have a gradual healing process that keeps the system in place and fixes it. I, on the other hand, dear viewers and listeners, have never been of that temperament. I think we should tear down the system and then permanently take out of power all of the owners of the system. That's what didn't happen in the New Deal era. Now back to bashing neolibs. The surrender of the liberal elite to despotism creates a power vacuum that speculators, war profiteers, gangsters, and killers, often led by charismatic demagogues, fill. It opens the door to fascist movements that rise to prominence by ridiculing and taunting the absurdities of the liberal class and the values they purport to defend. The promises of the fascists are fantastic and unrealistic, but their critiques of the liberal class are grounded in truth. Once the liberal class ceases to function, it opens a Pandora's box of evils that are impossible to contain. Here is the main point. The disease of Trumpism, with or without Trump, is, as the election illustrated, deeply embedded in the body politic. It is an expression among huge segments of the population taunted by liberal elites as deplorables of a legitimate alienation and rage that the Republicans and the Democrats orchestrated and now refuse to address. This Trumpism is also, as the election showed, not limited to white men whose support for Trump actually declined. Fyodor Dostoevsky saw the behavior of Russia's useless liberal class, which he satirized and excoriated at the end of the 19th century, as presaging a period of blood and terror. The failure of liberals to defend the ideals they espoused inevitably led, he wrote, to an age of moral nihilism. In Notes from Underground, he portrayed the sterile, defeated dreamers of the liberal class, those who hold up high ideals but do nothing to defend them. The main character in Notes from Underground carries the bankrupt ideas of liberalism to their logical extreme. He eschews passion and moral purpose. He is rational. He accommodates a corrupt and dying power structure in the name of liberal ideals. Evan Gerenitis, my dear Facebook friend, we're talking about you. You're the main character in Notes from Underground. You should read it sometime, Evan. The hypocrisy of the underground man dooms Russia as it now dooms the United States. It is the fatal disconnect between belief and action. I never even managed to become anything, neither wicked nor good, neither a scoundrel nor an honest man, neither a hero nor an insect, the underground man wrote. And now I am living out my life in my corner, taunting myself with the spiteful and utterly futile consolation that it is even impossible for an intelligent man seriously to become anything, and only fools become something. Yes, sir, an intelligent man of the 19th century must be and is morally obliged to be primarily a characterless being, and a man of character, an active figure, primarily a limited being.
The refusal of the liberal class to acknowledge that power has been wrested from the hands of citizens by corporations, that the Constitution and its guarantees of personal liberty have been revoked by judicial fiat, that elections are nothing more than empty spectacles staged by the ruling elites, that we are on the losing end of the class war, has left it speaking and acting in ways that no longer correspond to reality. The idea of the intellectual vocation, as Irving Howe pointed out in his 1954 essay, This Age of Conformity, the idea of a life dedicated to values that cannot possibly be realized by a commercial civilization has gradually lost its allure. And it is this, rather than the abandonment of a particular program, which constitutes our route. The belief that capitalism is the unassailable engine of human progress, Howe wrote, is trumpeted through every medium of communication. Official propaganda, institutional advertising, and scholarly writings of people who, until a few years ago, were its major opponents. The truly powerless people are those intellectuals, the new realists, who attach themselves to the seats of power, where they surrender their freedom of expression without gaining any significance as political figures, Howe wrote. For it is crucial to the history of the American intellectuals in the past few decades, as well as to the relationship between wealth and intellect, that whenever they become absorbed into the accredited institutions of society, they not only lose their traditional rebelliousness, but to one extent or another, they cease to function as intellectuals. Okay, you're watching me copy and paste this. Now you're watching me go to a spineless group of activists that I created on Facebook. It's called Apscuff Activism, and if there ever was an oxymoron, that's it. So now I send this post so they can drown in their own tears. Do you think a bunch of spineless intellectuals are going to react to this? Do you think they'll make comments underneath? For it is crucial to the history of the American intellectuals in the past few decades, as well as to the relationship between wealth and intellect, that whenever they become absorbed into the accredited institutions of society, they not only lose their traditional rebelliousness, but to one extent or another, they cease to function as intellectuals. Take that, you intellectuals. I don't think that'll do any good, but at least it makes me feel better. Populations can endure the repression of tyrants as long as these rulers continue to effectively manage and wield power. But human history has amply demonstrated that once those in positions of power become redundant and impotent, yet retain the trappings and privileges of power, they are brutally discarded. This was true in Weimar, Germany. It also was true in the former Yugoslavia, a conflict I covered for the New York Times. The historian Fritz Stern in The Politics of Cultural Despair, his book on the rise of fascism in Germany, wrote of the consequences of the collapse of liberalism. Stern argued that the spiritually and politically alienated, those cast aside by the society, the deplorables, are prime recruits for a politics centered around violence, cultural hatreds, and personal resentments. Much of this rage, justifiably, is directed at a liberal elite that, while speaking the I-feel-your-pain language of traditional liberalism, sells us out. They attacked liberalism, Stern writes of the fascists emerging at the time in Germany, because it seemed to them the principal premise of modern society, everything they dreaded seemed to spring from it. The bourgeois life, Manchesterism. Let me stop for a minute and tell you what Manchesterism is. 
This is Wikipedia, Manchester liberalism. Manchester liberalism, also called the Manchester School, Manchester capitalism, and Manchesterism, comprises the political, economic, and social movements of the 19th century that originated in Manchester, England. Led by Richard Cobden and John Bright, it won a wide hearing for its argument that free trade would lead to a more equitable society, making essential products available to all. Its most famous activity was the Anti-Corn Law League that called for repeal of the corn laws that kept food prices high. It expounded the social and economic implications of free trade and laissez-faire capitalism. The Manchester School took the theories of economic liberalism advocated by classical economists such as Adam Smith and made them the basis for government policy. It also promoted pacifism, anti-slavery, freedom of the press, and separation of church and state. And that seems to be where Ronnie and Maggie got a lot of their ideas. From Manchester. So everything the fascists feared seemed to spring from it. The bourgeois life, Manchesterism, materialism, parliament and the parties, the lack of political leadership. Even more, they sense in liberalism the source of all their inner sufferings. Theirs was a resentment of loneliness. Their one desire was for a new faith, a new community of believers, a world with fixed standards and no doubts, a new national religion that would bind all Germans together. All this liberalism denied. Hence, they hated liberalism, blamed it for making outcasts of them, for uprooting them from their imaginary past and from their faith. So Chris seems to think that if done right, liberalism is still a good thing. He's a hell of a lot smarter than I am, so perhaps he's right. I have to say that I'm not completely persuaded. Going on, we are in for it. The for-profit healthcare system designed to make money, not take care of the sick, is unequipped to handle a national health crisis. The healthcare corporations have spent the last few decades merging and closing hospitals and cutting access to healthcare in communities across the nation to increase revenue. This, as nearly half of all frontline workers remain ineligible for sick pay, and some 43 million Americans have lost their employee-sponsored health insurance. The pandemic without universal health care, which Biden and the Democrats have no intention of establishing, will continue to rage out of control. 300,000 Americans dead by December, 400,000 by January. And by the time the pandemic burns out or a vaccine becomes safely available, hundreds of thousands, maybe a few million, will have died. How do you feel about that, you comfy Democrats? The comfy people in this life are on the wrong side of the class divide. And as Chris points out, you, you motherfuckers, will be our undoing in the end. The economic fallout from the pandemic, the chronic underemployment and unemployment, close to 20% when those who have stopped looking for work, those furloughed with no prospect of being rehired, and those who work part-time but are still below the poverty line are included in the official statistics, will mean a depression unlike anything we have seen since the 1930s. Hunger in U.S. households has already tripled since last year. The proportion of U.S. children who are not getting enough to eat is 14 times higher than last year. Food banks are overrun. The moratorium on foreclosures and evictions has been lifted while over 30 million destitute Americans face the prospect of being thrown into the street. There is no check left on corporate power. 
The inevitable social unrest will see the state, no matter who is in the White House, use its three principal instruments of social control, wholesale surveillance, the prisons and militarized police, buttressed by a legal system that routinely revokes habeas corpus and due process to ruthlessly crush dissent. People of color, immigrants, and Muslims will be blamed and targeted by our native fascists for the nation's decline. The few who continue in defiance of the Democratic Party to call out the crimes of the corporate state and the empire will be silenced. The sterility of the liberal class serving the interests of a Democratic Party that disdains and ignores them fuels the widespread feelings of betrayal that saw nearly half the voters support one of the most vulgar, racist, inept, and corrupt presidents in American history. An American tyranny dressed up with the ideological veneer of a Christianized fascism will, it appears, define the empire's epochal descent into irrelevance. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, where he served as the Middle East Bureau Chief and Balkan Bureau Chief for the paper. He previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and NPR. He is the host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show, On Contact. So, dear viewers and listeners, if you decide to stop watching Rachel Maddow, you should watch Chris Hedges instead.